Hey, it's the producer again. Uh, sorry about this week's episode. It's audio. We're using Zoom and other digital solutions to be able to bring these episodes to you. We're going to keep on producing the show as we're going through this global crisis together. So on behalf of the Rising team, we just want to let you guys know, please stay safe and please enjoy the show. Right to speak discussions on social justice and advocacy. This is episode 60, and you're listening to the Rising Youth Podcast Edition. I'm your host, Salvatore. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Fatima and Fadime about mental health in marginalized communities and their project. I've been looking forward to having both of them on the show to discuss this topic. Um, I, it's always uh, something that I bring up when I talk about mental health and um, I always try to bring in the layer of working within marginalized communities. So I'm very excited that we have a full episode dedicated to this. Would you all like to introduce yourselves? Yes. Hi, um, my name is Fatima Mala and I am an addictions and mental health counselor at the Khalil Center Canada. Um, I primarily see individuals um, either, you know, from uh, with, you know, either they're Muslim or they come from an immigrant um, background. And I see them on an individual basis. I see families. I also facilitate support groups like the one that we'll be talking about today. And I also conduct workshops um, for various mental health topics for the community. Uh, awesome. So, hi, my name is Fadim. Uh, firstly, thank you for having us here in the podcast. Um, I'm uh, currently studying mental health and health studies at UFT. Uh, I co-facilitated uh, this sport group with a, a Fatima and Laika. Uh, and I've been volunteering with Khalil Center for over a year now. And yeah. I guess that's about it. Well, welcome on the show. We're just going to do what we normally do and dive into the question and uh, see where this journey takes us. So can you explain to the listeners what the Rising Youth Grant is and what process you took to apply for it? Um, and what things you learned about this process, for example, grant application and program development. Okay, so I'll talk a little bit about um, uh, the grant. Uh, um, I first heard about it from a friend of mine. She said that, you know, she'd heard of this great grant um, where they give um, various amounts of, of money to help young people um, kind of bring to life the projects and the ideas that they have and the impact that they want to make in their communities. And so, you know, of course, I was thinking of this program, so I decided to take a look, and um, my program was applicable um, for this grant. Um, so I just went up to the website, looked up all the requirements, and wrote out 
my first ever grant application using like random resources that I found on, on Google. Um, and I learned so many things from this application process, right? I learned, you know, I never created a budget before, right? Because I had no idea kind of how much and, and where, like how many resources I would need and, and where, um, you know, how many how much money I need to allocate to what and, and how I could go about doing it. So that was something that I definitely learned. The other thing that I learned was how to choose like correct wording for conveying the importance of my program and kind of helping other people who might or might not know about mental health and making them understand, you know, why it was important to have this project run for, for my community. And, um, and that in, that involved a lot of you know research on my end to make sure that I was having you know finding statistics and all the the information needed to kind of back up what I was saying. Um, and lastly, there were a lot of supports available by the writing grant staff to help you know to aid me in writing a really powerful grant application and to be able to kind of convey what it is that I that I wanted to and, and why my project was so important and you know why I would need. Um, their support and why they should help um, support my project and help kind of put it um, put it out and make it happen. Nice. It sounds like, and you know, this is a common theme that I'm hearing from um, people that have been successful with the grant is that the Rising Youth grant is very um, accessible and it really is, it gives you the resources and um, uh, supports you in the learning um, that you can get for future grants, let's say. So like now you know how to do a budget and you can apply for a bigger grant uh, later on in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's literally, it's exactly like that. Right. So it, it, well, one, the fact that I even received the grant really helped to kind of increase my motivation, make me feel not so like, um, timid and shy to reach out and, and to kind of apply for some of these grants because prior to this I thought well no one's going to want to give me a grant because they're not going to think that my idea is important enough right or they're not going to think my cause is important enough right and and just kind of receiving this support and and recognizing just how like supportive everybody is and in, in trying to help um, my ideas kind of come to life that really was motivating and and, and you know really even after this grant, you know, they had loads of other support for future grants that I could write. So they did like a workshop for how to write a grant. And I thought that was so helpful and teaching me loads of different skills that I could use to kind of make sure that I get the grant right. So even in terms of like program development, so coming up with outcomes for what I want to kind of see happen with, with the programs that, you know, I have in mind. And I think that's really, really excellent. That's awesome. I, I mean, from someone who has written grants in the past, um, that support is often lacking. So I'd love to hear that Rising Youth is offering, you know, so much support with that. Um, would you be able to uh, explain to the listeners what your project is? What is this support group? Well, Fadime, would you like to explain this? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Fatima. Um, so our project is called, um, so basically we created a anxiety sport group for women. Um, and the theme was the stress, the mess, how can I deal? So uh, we conceptualized a, um, a 10 week anxiety sport group for women, for young girls uh, from our communities. And our whole 
school was to um, help girls and women gain sport and to learn skills to help manage their um, anxiety. And, um, you know, anxiety can be caused through, you know, difficulty that they face in work, in school, in their relationships and other situ social situations that they find themselves in. So due to that, we wanted, our whole goal was to create a safe space for these women to uh, feel safe, to feel connected and be able to discuss uh, about their anxiety without feeling judged. Um, and yeah, and through that, what we did was each week um, for the 10 weeks, uh, the participants, basically had the chance to learn and discuss different topics related to anxiety. And we had like various, many topics that we discussed, which were very, um, it, it was just amazing to learn and to talk about as well. Like relaxation techniques, uh, we had some psychoed as well, like introduction to um, CBT and reframing self-talk. Uh, we had exposure and safety behaviors, uh, introduction to mindfulness, transforming anxious uh, emotions through art, where we did have like art therapists that joined us as well. Uh, enhancing, we talked about enhancing self-esteem and also learning different communication styles and assertiveness, as well as coping with uh, perfectionism and expressing emotion through poetry. So we did do a lot throughout this 10 weeks. Wow, I, it sounds amazing. It sounds like you've both covered uh, everything, <laughs> 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 which I love. And what I like about this uh, group is that you're using different techniques and often with um, some groups, like support groups out there, they stick with one technique perform and it sounds to me that this has been uh, you know a bit flexible and kind of meeting uh, the women and the girls where they're at is that true or <laughs> oh yeah yes, of course <laughs> what our goal was and yeah that's what our goal was for the 10 weeks and we tried um, reaching that goal basically nice um, so why did you want to start this support group, did you see any gaps in social services that didn't meet the needs of uh, marginalized women and girls? Like wh what was the driver behind this? Um, maybe I'll talk about this a little bit. Um, so as I said earlier, right, I, I'm a uh, mental health and addictions counselor um, currently at the Khalil Center and that's a Muslim Toronto, the first of its kind actually um, and they focus on community psychological and spiritual wellness so mostly we see Muslim clients with um, psychological social familial relational and spiritual concerns um, and also immigrant immigrant populations and what really makes um, Khalil Center different is that it utilizes a tailored like integrative approach of, of care to address the unique challenges that are faced by Muslim and immigrant populations. And, and while I was seeing clients there, I started to kind of notice a trend. And that was that so many individuals were, were struggling with similar challenges. Um, so many younger individuals were struggling with similar challenges. So for example, some of them could be that, you know, their parents, um, they could not connect with them due to a cultural and or a generational gap. Um, 
or you know anxiety due to parental and self-pressure to study in school and university, right? Um, or the shame surrounding addiction coming from a religious community or, you know, the fear of expressing their mental health concerns to their loved ones for fear of being stigmatized and or alienated, right? And I think something that was common amongst all of them was kind of just feeling isolated in their struggles, like feeling like there's no one else that they could really connect to, when in reality, you know, many of these people, they were all feeling a similar sense of isolation and I really wanted to do something that could help alleviate that feeling of isolation and I really wanted to create a community of support for these individuals so that they wouldn't feel so alone um, in the struggles that they were experiencing. Um, now, if we look at like statistics from CAMH, we, we kind of see that, you know, approximately one in five Canadians will experience a mental illness or addiction in their lives. And the most prevalent of mental health concerns is anxiety and mood disorders and women are known to exhibit higher rates of both right so we thought well why don't we do an anxiety support group um for women right because it just kind of made sense and i was noticing that you know there was i was seeing a lot of clients that were females that were struggling with anxiety so i thought well this would be kind of the perfect thing to do and to start off with because anxiety is also one of those things that um you know is it might be a little bit easier to talk about in our community rather than something like addictions which is like a lot more taboo right? Anxiety is a little bit um, easier for some individuals to talk about and to, to collectively talk about, whereas addictions is so taboo that I don't even know if we're quite ready to start tackling that, but, you know, hopefully in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have two follow-up questions. You, you kind of answered one for me, which was why start with a support group with women? So I'm wondering, will you in the future, is there hopes to do Yeah, so that's, um, I think, yeah, so definitely, yeah, I can definitely answer this now. Um, there is, right, so we have um, an evaluation proposal underway right now. I'm working with a research student, and we're trying to kind of see, you know, how our program did in terms of, um, like, if we met our goals and uh, the, if, like, the, um, I guess, the questionnaires and uh, surveys that we did, if appropriate to um, I guess what we were testing for and the outcomes that we were looking for. And so I think the for the future, we're definitely looking at varying different like age, one age groups, right? So younger people versus um, like just different age groups, like maybe parents or like the elderly, right? And also looking at different genders and maybe even having mixed gendered groups, right? I don't know how that would, I mean, we're trying to kind of figure it out. We want to save the safety of the space, right? right? Um, but also trying to include many more people because, you know, um, there it's very, mental health is, and mental illness is very stigmatized um, for males as well, right? And it's, it's very difficult to find um, groups that are for racialized males. And that's definitely something that I'm really passionate about. And um, I would love to, to kind of, for maybe a next group, I want to kind of include a wider range of um, support for other um, like ages and other and, and genders as well. So you mentioned uh, briefly before, and I just want to touch upon it a bit more about addictions and how addictions um, 
in some marginalized communities is seen as taboo. And, you know, I know that to be true as well. So I'm wondering, you know, how can we start to move forward from that to make these types of conversations, oh my gosh, conversations okay to be had within, uh, you know, various types of communities? Right. So another group that I've done in the past, or it's more, it was more of a workshop group. It was more just kind of, it was more knowledge-based rather than, um, like talking about your own experiences with, um, with like the, so this, the, the um, anxiety group was more the individual self-identified um, their anxiety and they were kind of talking about their own anxiety and their struggles with it and some ways to cope and, and all that kind of stuff. Whereas the other group that I did was more an educational one where I was providing mm -hmm. psychoeducational to a group, uh, psychoeducational uh, material to a group of people that wanted to learn more about right um and that was more of a focus group where i like focused on a different topic each week for, i believe six weeks um so different things from like trauma to anxiety to depression to, to addictions so we're trying to do our like little things here and there to try to acquaint the community with the different issues that exist right because like although it is prohibited as muslims to to consume alcohol it is like it's something that happens, right? Mm -hmm. There are alcohol addictions, there are addictions to marijuana, there are addictions to pornography. All of these things happen, although they're really taboo and we don't talk about them, right? Um, so it's just bringing to people's awareness that these issues do exist. And hopefully that will kind of create an atmosphere where it's easier to talk about some of these things. And, and we wanna bring that into eventually a space where people can talk about their own um, struggles with addiction or, or their family members struggle right and not have to kind of keep it um, to themselves and not have to kind of deal with it on their own and, and get the support that they require I mean I, I think the psychoeducation piece is a it's an excellent uh, place to start right I mean just you know from the education standpoint I think it's about planting the seeds and slowly you know it'll take some time that it will eventually um, break down some of the taboo and at least at your agency have a safe space for these um, conversations to be had so kudos to you for doing the psychoeducation mm. absolutely um so i just want to switch gears a little bit um i'm talking more of a, a well i'm just gonna ask the question so we know that mental health is experienced and viewed differently in various communities um and we just kind of touched upon some of this stuff before so with taking into that consideration, how does um, your project kind of work outside of the North American view of mental health? Mm. Right. So I spoke about this a little bit earlier, right? Um, so Khalil Center's approach is a little bit different to um, the traditional North American view of mental health, right? Um, Khalil Center views mental health as 
is more holistic, right? They offer a more holistic, integrative approach to counseling and to therapy, right? We utilize uh, spiritually integrated interventions and we draw from, you know, psychological literature on best practices for counseling and therapy, and that is um, integrated with spiritual interventions as well. And um, the therapeutic framework created by some of the psychologists at Khalil Center, it's called Traditional Islamically Integrated Psychotherapy, or TIIP for short, which recognizes, you know, individual differences in culture and faith, and it utilizes, like, our rich um, religious and uh, religious, I guess, frameworks and, and scholarship that's kind of happened, um, scholarship from the past, and utilizing it to create this, I guess, integrative approach of care that addresses the unique challenges faced by Muslims and, and the immigrant populations here in, in North America. And, you know, we really wanted to kind of embody the essence of that and kind of bring that into our sessions. And I think we did that in kind of two ways. The first way was to create a safe, non-judgmental and understanding space to allow for individuals to explore, you know, how their culture, faith and immigration stories reflect the struggles that they face. And secondly, we incorporated um, spiritual concepts that individuals in the group could relate with and draw inspiration from and utilize their everyday coping. Um, some examples could be that, um, you know, we use stories from, um, for example, uh, the like from prophetic traditions, right? Um, prophetic stories that could, that kind of connected with the anxiety to kind of remind the individuals that, you know, anxiety is something that is integrated within our tradition. And, you know, you're not, it's not something that's new. And it's something that, you know, is, is kind of, we can find it within our script and we can find it within our history and you know it's okay to kind of be feeling anxiety and to kind of normalize it in that kind of a way and for them to draw strength from individuals from 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 history as well right individuals that they've always looked up to as they were growing up and and now it's almost like oh I can kind of uh, understand and appreciate that this person might have been suffering from anxiety or depression and this is how they dealt with it so I can kind of take some of those skills and incorporate it into my life. And, and that would be helpful for me with my anxiety. Does that kind of make sense? Yes, no, it does very much. Um, and I really like the integrated approach that the Julio Center, it's Julio Center, right? Um, it's Khalil, like K-H-I-L, Khalil. Khalil. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I like the integrative approach that uh, is used there. I was wondering, because we know that we have, like on this podcast, we have some people working frontline and in the field. Um, can you give more examples of what this integrated approach looks like yeah. on the front line? Yep. So um, it's basically taking into account so there's it's a mix of so for example we can take something like um like mm. cbt right um and cbt is very like it's very widespread um western psychotherapy it's it's one of the most like um clinically um it's known as like a best practice um here here in north america specifically right and um it's really good, right? We know that it works, and um, it's specifically effective for, for, um, for example, like anxiety and depression, right? Um, and 
for TIAP, it would be it wouldn't be discounting the CBT; it would just be adding to it to make it more nuanced for a Muslim and or an immigrant immigrant population, right? Um, so an example could be that you know, um, um, like for example, like language, right, or the way that um, different. For example, I think this might be a good example actually. Um, in kind of the Western world, we're more individualistic society, right? Um, and the East would be more collectivistic, right? So it's more, uh, they focus more on like the collective whole, whereas over here in North America, we would, we were more individualistic. We, we are more driven by individual success, right? Um, not necessarily like a community or a collectivistic success, right? So it's kind of incorporating like bits and aspects of that, but also incorporating, um, like I like I said earlier, right? The like from the history of mental health from from like a more Eastern perspective as well, and from history um, of like so for example, people like um, uh, Al Balhi, right? He is a um, like a, a polymath from I don't. I don't even know what century, but a long time ago, right? Where he he recognized that you know there was um, there was like behaviors and there were emotions and there were um, thoughts and they were all interconnected, right? So it's kind of drawing on some of the history from from the past, but also kind of taking into account that you know we have the CBT and we have the DBT and we have the emotion focused therapy and kind of reconciling the two to make it more. Um, applicable to a Muslim and immigrant population. I, I don't know if that really, I don't know if that was a very good example, but... Um, <laughs> um, it was, it was. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, no, I um, I love the approach. So th thank you for uh, breaking it down and explaining it. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to flip back to your project. Mm -hmm. um, what are your, what are you hoping to accomplish you know, you've done the support group, but what are your hopes for it? Uh, what are your hopes for the future of it? Fidime, would you like to speak on it? I can go ahead. So as Fatma did mention before, we really hope to, um, because it was a successful project, we gained a lot and we do believe that the participants gained a lot um, through the feedback that we saw. So we do hope to um, continue to run this project and uh, as Fatma mentioned before, to cater it for different um, groups. So, you know, different age groups or different genders, right? Um, so this can be like for only high school, boys for only high school um, boys anxiety group focusing on them and yeah so we basically want to have further sport groups focusing on different groups um, yeah, do you want to add anything Fatima? Um, no I think that's pretty much it and I think the other thing that I think I mean, I've already mentioned it a little bit, but we do have an evaluation proposal underway, which is um, being conducted to help determine, you know, the effectiveness of the group in meeting the outcomes that we had outlined initially and finding ways to improve, you know, the efficacy of the group and its longevity and promoting the health outcomes that we hope to achieve. And some of those health outcomes are simply just, you know, 
um, the individuals learning, um, uh, I guess, healthier coping mechanisms and um, um, kind of learning to manage their anxiety in ways that they were not able to before. Um, hopefully, you know, allowing them to not be held back by their anxiety and to kind of be productive members in, in, in their society and just in their lives and their families and their relationships at school, right? Um, so just kind of finding ways to improve the effectiveness of the group and, and kind of making it more applicable to wider groups as well. So for both of you, what has been the one thing you've learned from this project? Oh, one thing that I took from this project is that it is possible, like when we do work as a community, when we work together, it is possible to create um, safe spaces, open spaces, and we can do a lot. Um, and basically creating spaces where we're excluding stigma, uh, there's no judgment, and uh, um, like having sport groups like this for women or for other um, groups. And I think it was just an amazing journey, an, an amazing learning experience for myself and I think for my team members as well. Uh, do you want to share what you learned, Fatima? Absolutely, I learned that it was so hard to get a large number participants to join our group. Um, I was hoping that we would have like more participants and that was initially when I had the tickets go out I was just every day I would check my Eventbrite page and see if more people signed up and I would be so discouraged by you know the slow um, I guess uh, like the purchase of tickets was just so so slow um, and that was really disheartening um, and you know I think that just kind of put into perspective for me, you know, um, how challenging it is to kind of discuss mental health, especially in communities where mental health is highly, highly stigmatized. Um, but, you know, it slowly but surely, you know, we we tried to kind of take a step back and, and, and challenged ourselves with um, trying to do things differently to see if we could get more people to join, right? So we um, postponed our group by a week and instead we used the first week as um, like an open house where we invited people to come to the center and to come with their families and, and to you know have some food and kind of just mingle and learn a little bit of, about anxiety so I ended up doing some more psychoeducational pieces just so people could feel more comfortable um, with the topic and just kind of realize that you know it's okay to to come to the center and it's okay to talk about some of the some of the challenges and some of the struggles that um that we face right um and um that you know it was it was all right to come and to come and talk about some of these things and that it was okay <laughs> um and you know i think i have that right Right? And, and the challenges that we faced, I think at the end, it was really, really beautiful community that we ended up creating. Um, and I wanted to share some results from an anonymous survey that we conducted at the end of our 10-week group and some of the answers that we received from participants for their takeaways from the group. And some of the things that we heard were that, you know, anxiety affects everyone differently, right? Um, uh, someone said that, you know, I'm not alone in my struggles and, and everybody has struggles. Um, someone said, you know, I feel better and more educated about topics related to anxiety. 
um, someone said, you know, I've gained self-help methods and it helped to be in a group interacting with others, right? Um, so it was really nice to hear feedback that kind of supported um, our initial purpose and, and allowed me to kind of recognize that, you know, it's it's slow progress, but it's it's progress nonetheless. And, Love and that. that. Sounds like it was, that was a really very effective group and you accomplished all what you uh, were hoping to, at least from creating a safe space standpoint. So congratulations on that. Um, you know, we, yeah, I mean, we touched upon this a little bit, but um, I just want us to dive a little bit deeper, you know, in terms of counselors working within marginalized community, um, what advice would you offer them? And in particular, what advice would you offer uh, white counselors working within marginalized communities? Mm -hmm. um, so I think the way that I want to answer this question is by um, looking at some of the data yeah, that we yeah. have from Khalil Center. Now I can't speak for all marginalized communities, right, but I can say that generally speaking, right, and, and from the experience that I have working within my community is that, you know, there are a lot of clients and that do not feel comfortable seeking out um, mental health care from public or private services, right? And for our organization uh, at the Khalil Center, right, we, we conduct research on the use of our services. And last year, we found that 75% of our clients, and that's over 5,000 clients, said that they would not have sought mental health treatment if our spiritually integrated services were not available. Right. Um, and that, that's a lot, 75 percent. Right. Um, so many Muslims, they believe that their emotional distress is due to spiritual and or metaphysical causes and they would like their therapy to be integrated. Right. And they feel that, you know, that they might not be able to, I guess, receive that from from just public or private services that are available. Right. Um, and some specific reasons that come from literature for why Muslims do not seek mental health care from from public or private services is um, some of the reasons are right. A mistrust of service users, a fear of mistreatment and discrimination. Language barriers, right, differences in communication and religious differences. Right. Um, so spirituality is, is very important to a lot of um, uh, people in, in marginalized communities, right, and, and their cultural uh, understanding, right, so language barriers, communication, um, and just even mistrust, right, and, and fear of mistreatment and discrimination. And I think that's, that's so unfortunate that, you know, um, that, you know, these have to be barriers in, in seeking treatment because we know that, you know, a lot of, like, one in five people struggle with their mental health, right, and you know, there, there's quite a huge population that would, of a marginalized population that would fall into that category. And it's such a shame that, you know, they are not able to access um, the services that they, they require um, due to some of these, you know, things that can be very easily almost, um, you know, like almost um, solved or like very easily um, accounted for, right? just by being open, by being non-judgmental to the opinions, values, um, religious understanding of um, minority populations, marginalized populations, right? And just by maintaining, I guess, professionalism, right? And, and researching um, a little bit about, you know, what is important and, and what it means to come from some of these communities, right? Understanding, um, you know, uh, how immigration affects um, 
um, you know, uh, people and their mental health and also understand. Can I just add on to that? Um, other cultural differences. Because well. I, you know, this, I love this topic. Um, I, I think it's Absolutely. important, you know, also for workers to kind of really work from a cultural humility perspective um, versus the cultural competency. Because, you know, I found, you know, the cultural competency, you know, you're just generally researching basically on, you know, a culture community. And, you know, for me, culture humility is really looking at that individualized perspective um, which, you know, for me is kind of underlining to what you're saying, you know, I, I find that individualized perspective so, so important because how people view a culture and how an individual views a culture or a community is very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's, it's meeting the client or meeting, you know, the patient where they're at. Right. And understanding the world from from their right. point of view and their perspective, because at the end of the day. Right. Like if the way you view it really doesn't matter. Right. Um, because, I mean, you're working to serve that other person. Right. You're not working to serve yourself. Um, and I think that's that's really important. And, and I really you know, I thank you for bringing that up. I think that's a really excellent point um, to kind of of keep in mind and, and it goes back to just just the very basics of counseling and therapy right um is meeting the client where they're at to not kind of adding your own um like it kind of imposing your worldview and your like um privilege or your right and really you know how you just they live you know them, relationship right? building that really that, that is so them. key to for me for social services i think you know you, you spoke a lot about you know mistrust and fear and I think you know the relationship building kind of breaks that down a little bit where you know the person coming in for that service is able to slowly start trusting you like I I work from a perspective that you know it may take me six months to build a relationship with the youth but that's okay right um it, it's all about breaking down those barriers for them or mm -hmm. with them That's right. Yeah. And, you know, going with that, right, it takes a long time to build that relationship, to build that rapport. But sometimes it can be very um, almost like, yes, um, just very small things that can also break down that rapport. Right. Um, and I think it's keeping that in mind as well and kind of checking in and making sure that, you know, um, that, you know, that you are kind of consistently working hard towards building and also maintaining that relationship because just as easily as, I mean, it can be built or as difficult as it is to build, right? Um, it's very easy to kind of um, break down that rapport and break down kind of that fabric that you've kind of laid out and created for your relationship and find little tears in, in, in that. Oh, part. yes. I mean, that has happened really, to me more than really once where one small part. thing and it's... <laughs> just kind of blew up <laughs> which is okay I mean you know we're not <laughs> it, it, like people make mistakes right so you have to hope that the relationship that you built is able to kind of go through really the roller coasters right
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a roller coasters as well, but it also comes down to responsibility yeah. and accepting uh, and taking responsibility for for some of the ruptures in the relationship as well, right? So just being really humble and, you know, apologizing when, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I misunderstood that. And, and that made you feel like, you know, I totally invalidated your experience. Mm. Um, do you think it's okay if, you know, we started again, and you were able to explain to me, you know, what it is that's going on and perhaps this time, you know, I will respond in a way that's, that's more appropriate and that, that makes you feel more comfortable, right? And just doing something as simple as that, right, apologizing and um, just kind of being more humble and taking a step back can really help kind of put that client back, you know, in that place sure. where they're oh, able you to, are speaking my to have some power back to kind of explain the <laughs> way that they see, that they see it. I, I, we, I can talk about this all day. <laughs> <laughs> um that's a whole other podcast so let's switch back <laughs> um you know so i do you think that it's important for organizations um to you know and how like rising youth you know, supports people in their grants. Do you think it's important for organizations who also offer grants to make their shift similar to Rising Youth? Yeah, uh, I think that does. makes sense. 100%, 100%. <laughs> because, um, well, personally, uh, as I was growing up, I always had a goal of doing something related to mental health, of sporting people, sporting individuals, because I've seen the struggles my friends or uh, my colleagues, my classmates faced due to the stigma attached to mental health. They weren't um, as open about it. They weren't able to seek help um, because of that stigma uh, that they face. So that being the case, that was always a goal for me. And thank you to Fatima for giving me the chance to work with her uh, throughout this um, sport group. And basically, um, there are many young people who have brilliant ideas, but they can't implement it because there are so many barriers that exist, right? And some of these barriers are like financial barriers and you need that sport in order to, um, in order to do your project, right? To uh, put it to life. So that being the case, having organizations like Rising Youth, it's like really, really extremely important because um, that way uh, they provide opportunities for the youth to give back to the community, right? They give opportunities for the youth to support other individuals, to reach their goals and to execute an, like innovative projects that will have an everlasting impact. And thank you so much to Rising Youth for giving us the opportunity, for giving us the chance to um, create a project like this. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Uh, so now we are near the end of the episode, unfortunately. Um, so I'm going to ask what I say this every episode, what's become mm -hmm. the trademark question for the show. What does advocacy mean to you both? Sure. Um, well, I'm a mental health advocate and advocacy is basically would you like to start with being it? a voice for a cause and uh it can be done in various ways like to support the cause uh being powerful being effective uh, 
to put it in a simple way, I guess it's just for me, it's to stand up for what you believe in, doing this fearlessly, uh, doing this with power, um, just working hard for this goal, uh, for whatever you're advocating for, and never stopping, never giving up, and always fighting for this cause in order to be effective. I guess that's what I see advocacy as. Nice. That's awesome. Um, I think that that's really good. Um, I completely agree with that as well. And um, I just like to add that, you know, for me, advocacy is, again, you know, finding that cause that you believe in, right? Um, and then just kind of working with people to help to kind of reach their potential and to to help them reach the milestones that that they want to to reach and help them to kind of make the changes that that they wish to see in their lives and i think that just kind of happens to work out like that because i might be like you know working with addictions and mental health and 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 because i am a counselor right so i think my work is very is very like advocacy is very central to my work and kind of helping people to get to where they want well, to be. Well, thank you both for being on the show. Your passion definitely uh, speaks through you both. So uh, thank you. It for was great to us. have you on the show. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to kind of take the opportunity both of you um, for um, allowing us to do this podcast and, and you know for working so hard to kind of come up with this time and you know doing it remotely with all that's going on right now uh, thank you for that and I also wanted to take this opportunity to say that you know we're really thankful to um, the Rising Youth Grant, Taking It Global, the Government of Canada, and Canada Service Corps for generously supporting this project and for making it possible. And also to all the people that worked on this um, support group and made it possible, right, from uh, the co-facilitators, Fadime and Laika, and also all the participants and um, the staff at Khalil Centre Canada for providing us the space and the opportunity to do the workshops there and, you know, for allowing us to market through their page and um, and, and all of it, right? I'm just so humbled and yeah, grateful for, for having for this opportunity us. to work with such amazing people and, um, and, and for being able to do this awesome. Well, I think this is a great way to end the show. Um, your Right to Speak will be posted on the second Wednesday of every month. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Rising Youth Podcast. For more information about the program that we provide or you want to start your own project, you could visit risingyouth.ca. Let's raise awareness together.